Welcome to Imagining France, a series of podcasts bringing you into the world of the National Gallery's summer exhibition, Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns Between Paris and pont For this episode, Roderick O'Connor artist-in-residence Una Seeley speaks with Mick O'Dee, president of the RHA, about the exchange of ideas and practices that artist colonies engender. Una Seeley and I'm a painter and I am an artist in residence for a month during the run of the exhibition at the National Gallery uh, called Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns from Paris to pont de So what I'm doing is I'm basically I have a magnificent studio, the Millennium Wing studio, and I'm um, I'm basically, I'm doing my own work, but I'm referencing and uh, responding to the, uh, to the exhibition, which is just across the way from me, from my studio. And um, I'm really just seeing where it brings me and I'm just finding it a fascinating uh, exercise. Um, Roger O'Connor was somebody that I would have been pretty influenced by as a younger artist. I, was, I did a lot of work with sort of dark outlines and a lot of separation of color. And um, although my work has changed a lot over the years since then, uh, I feel that it's quite liberating to be able to go back and challenge uh, that sort of uh, my early influences and to re-engage with them again. And it's produced some uh, kind of work that's sort of surprised me in some ways, and I'm finding it a very uh, interesting process. And Mick, you're, I'm sitting here with Mick O'Dee, who is, has just driven up from Mayo to chat to me here today. And he's going to tell us, tell me something about him. Hi, Una. Uh, Hi, lovely Mick. to be here. Um, <laughs> North Mayo, Eris, uh, as they call it. Um, fantastic part of the country. Um, coincidentally, uh, one of the reasons that I am there is as a consequence of attending an artist's colony of sorts, but more a residency that uh, was founded in Ballycastle, County Mayo. 25 years ago. I and a number of other artists were introduced to the coastline of uh, North Mayo as a consequence of that and one thing has led to another and I ended up buying a cottage there. In uh, the company of my good friend and close neighbour Pat Harris, the painter, who also has a cottage there. Like you, uh, I'm a painter and uh, current president of the Royal Hibernian Academy and a member of the Board of Governors of the National Gallery of Ireland here. And uh, fascinated to see how this conversation that we'll embark on will go and where it will lead us. Yeah, because we're, we're, what we're going to be talking about today is the idea of the artist's colony as such, and whether that is something that is still relevant to artists, um, how, how we kind of think or it's affected the work in the exhibition. And, um, and 
And what is the current manifestation of the artist's colony? I would say, uh, you know, from a current point of view, I would say the artist's colony has become really more the artist's residency, mm. and which gives artists the opportunity to travel to different parts of the world and work in communities of artists. Mm. Um, now, Mick, you've, been, you've attended a, a lot of, uh, or spent time in a lot of uh, artists' residencies over mm -hmm. the years, as far as I know, haven't you? Well, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say a lot of, but certainly a number. Uh, I think the reason why I qualify my reply is that I remember being on one artist's residency. Actually, it was in Anna McCarrick in uh, County Monaghan in 2000, no, when was it? It was 1991 or 1992. And I met a writer, an American writer there, and her work seemed to be all about the dynamics between various artists who spend their lives going to various artist colonies. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, she was going from one uh, residency to another and uh, it was fueling her work. And I kind of found that a little bit, to my mind, incestuous. So I've always been um, careful, consequently. Uh, about maybe saying that I've been to a lot. Been to quite a number, but not a lot. Yeah. So do, are you, do you think maybe that somebody like that who makes a, a kind of career out of going from colony to colony or mm -hmm. to residency to residency, mm -hmm. um, that the residencies start almost dictating what they're doing as an artist rather than their trajectory of their own personal career? Inevitably, it will. And I suppose it's a way of life for, for some people, you know, that... Uh, they have been, and I can, I'm not qualified to say to what extent, but that it's certainly a trajectory uh, within the work patterns and, uh, shall we say, practices of various artists, yeah. Yeah. So interestingly, so in the exhibition here, the Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns, um, I think it was probably different because this was, would have been, the whole exhibition is, uh, all the works were made there basically uh, over about a decade in the, mm. uh, in the late 1890s. Mm -hmm. And um, there would have been up to 100 artists living in this small town in Brittany. Mm -hmm. And there was literally like easels everywhere on the streets. Mm -hmm. And they were staying in a couple of the hotels and lodgings there. And they were, I mean, they were obviously having a great time because yeah. they were getting their, like their lunch, breakfast, you know, breakfast, lunch packed and dinner. Lunch. Packed lunch made for them. Mm -hmm. Dinners in the evening, mm -hmm. you know, tons and tons of like cider. And I yeah. mean... I mean, it sounds like any artist's dream, but, but, but they were all um, influenced by each other and they were all like competing with each other. And yeah. they were sort of, do you think, but that, as far as I can see, that doesn't really, is there any modern equivalent of that in residencies or is everybody, does everybody just go and just totally do their own thing and they don't interact like that, would you say, in your experience? Um, it depends on the chemistry. I guess it depends on the dynamic. And that was an early manifestation of an artist's colony. And I guess they really came about because of trains and the recent uh, Industrial Revolution. Apparently, one of the early manifestations of it was in the newly opened forest, Royal Forest in Fontainebleau, which yeah. you probably know about and the fact that uh, the train service to Fontainebleau brought tourists in large numbers, much to the annoyance of some artists who'd already discovered it and had, had uh, made the long and difficult passage by coach to it. But once the trains arrived, they'd opened them up phenomenally. And there's, 
to the extent that it was overrun with painters. And of course, I guess that coincided with the manufacturing of oil paint and putting them into tubes. I think the first tubes made an appearance in the 18, 1820s. And uh, so suddenly you, you didn't need your apprentice, you didn't need... Uh, to carry all your stuff for you, you mean? You didn't need yeah. pig's bladders to <laughs> hold your pigment and grind your pigment every morning. And, yeah. and so, yeah, and there's even cartoons in Parisian newspapers from the 1830s and 1840s of artists with easel traffic jams. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and sounds, like I, the, sounds like the RHA live drug so, session of a Thursday. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, uh, and uh, Brittany then, of course, became uh, quite exotic when the region still had very distinct personalities yeah. in terms of costume, uh, habits, food, phenomenal amounts of things. Mm. Yeah, and it must have been very exotic yeah. to go to Brittany. Yeah, I and, think... And I think if you're pioneering something, and it sounds yeah. like that was being pioneered, that it must have been very exciting. Yeah, and I think, as you say, because near the train going to Fontainebleau, and there was yeah. a, a town, a colony, another artist colony near there called Grez sur Luang. Yeah. Uh, and some of the earlier paintings in the exhibition are uh, from there. So an yes. early Roger O'Connor of the bridge at uh, Grace Your Long or Grace Your Long and but as you say they, they, they you know he for one I think felt that, uh, that, that he wanted to go and see what was happening in Brittany it was more remote yes. and, um, and, and going there when it was almost medieval looking the, mm. the costumes and some of the religious habits and the, mm. the, um, the, their traditional way of life was mm. very untouched mm. and, um, but, and, and I think that that was really when uh, O'Connor himself made that a big leap from the impressionist work he was doing in Fontainebleau south of Paris uh, to when he got very experimental when he came in, in, in touch with the legacy of Gauguin which mm. was in um, Pont-Aven mm. That post-impressionist school certainly yeah. had a profound effect on him and I mean one of the things that I get from looking at the work down at the exhibition along with the work of his contemporaries is the vividness of the colour and yeah. it's really escaped naturalism Yeah, it's gone into a whole other um, chromatic uh, range mm. and um, even when O'Connor does return almost to um, an academic type of uh, figuration a bit like um, the late Len Renoir yeah. um, the colour is very, very vivid. Yeah. I mean, the colour is just at a pitch that you would never find in Irish painting, for instance. Yeah. That's what makes it so exciting. Yeah. Mm. And I think the, um, I suppose part of the ability of somebody like O'Connor, you know, he spent the best part of a decade in an artist's colony of Pontevin. Um, Did he spend that long? Yeah, okay. yes. I mean, some, many artists just would come for the summer yeah, months and then they'd go back to Paris. Sure. But he, he basically spent the best part of that amount of time there. I didn't realise that. Yeah, mm. and um, he, but the, fa the fact is he was a man of independent means and that he could afford to do that. And I think as I well... I don't think he was an exception in that sense. Yeah, I think people would have had to have had. Yeah. Um, but I think what he as well is he didn't, uh, he didn't have to depend on selling any of his work. Mm -hmm. So... 
I think which gave him in particular huge freedom mm-hmm. to be to bring that uh, experimental work to even more of an extreme mm-hmm. than than some of the others, like the. The, the sort of that's the stripe effect, you know, to dividing up um, the, the colors, particularly on the shadow side of objects, into parallel stripes of complementary colors. Yes. Uh, he, he, you know, in the exhibition that's here now, he has brought that to the most kind of extreme degree, even mm. more so than um, Van Gogh did. Mm. And although O'Connor had never never met Van Gogh, mm-hmm. he had, he, there is evidence that he would have seen news of Van Gogh's work, which Van Gogh was, was making in the south of France, in the other colony down in Arles, in mm-hmm. the south of France. Mm-hmm. But, that, but, but there was work traveling between these, the colonies of the south of France and the colonies of Brittany, Pontevin and Concarneau, mm-hmm. that people were seeing each other's work. And that, uh, but that O'Connor was, was uh, I mean, in that exhibition, there's at, at one point when, when he's at peak stripe, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's absolutely extreme. But, it, but funnily enough, then he, and he obviously influenced the Swiss artist, uh, Kuno Amiet, mm-hmm. who was very good friends with O'Connor. But then they seem to have stepped back from that a bit. So I think things were happening very, very quick. Changes in style were happening really quickly mm-hmm. because it was such a hotbed. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if, can it, do, do, is there, do any, does anything like that happen anymore? Like, do you feel as a painter that, that figurative painters like us, that we, do we influence each other um, in our, you know, in the way that we would meet up on residencies and, uh, you know, group exhibitions and that? Is, do you think the same kind of I do, yeah. I mean, I think that, happening. I think we, you, I, yeah. and our uh, contemporaries and colleagues, particularly in and around the RHA, influence each other considerably, yeah. uh, that uh, we seem to have the same uh, ambitions for the work. Uh, and there is a lot of interplay. And as you know, um, we did organize drawing sessions every Thursday in the RHA before the RHA school started. And the idea behind that was to have a venue where artists would come out of their studios draw because we had a shared passion for drawing. That, that was a wide umbrella which included a lot of artists. And there was a whole social aspect around that so that it was not just the drawing that occurred and it was hard work during the day, but that shared sense of accomplishment that occurred afterwards along with uh, good drinks and food. And that I did, I feel that that gave a great camaraderie, but like everything, it's got, a, it's got a period of time and then uh, people move on or they have been nurtured or, or fed and they do, like, I guess it's almost like the 1960s and Carnaby mm. Street and every, everything has its uh, time and a vortex and then a, a disparate uh, breakup of the, of the phenomenon and people go about doing their own things. But yeah, there is a huge amount. There has yeah. to be a huge amount of interaction and uh, influence and people influencing each other still. Yeah, actually that's really, um, that is a, was a kind of a little microcosm of nearly an artist's colony, wasn't yeah. it? When, yeah. when the, the sort of the ad hoc drawing, uh, life drawing session started, that was in 2003 mm-hmm. at the RHA, so mm-hmm. that was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And a, uh, a group of like-minded people um, came together yeah. and um, there was, and it probably would have been the first time 
since many of us had left art college, really, mm-hmm. that we had that um, that that kind of interaction, that consistency, mm. um, and that we really became a kind of a working group. And um, and springing out of that, then there was various trips organized away where where um, the, the group would go off and paint together for a week in in um, in various places around the country. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, and then, then building out of that, then it uh, it all became formalised, and and then became literally what developed into the RHA school, precisely, which has now opened up to a much much larger contingent. Yeah. And um, but it just came from that organic start. Yes. To give them that momentum. Yeah. And um, it's amazing how cyclical things are like that, aren't they? That. And I'm sure that there are microcosms of that spread throughout the country, whether you be in Limerick, Cork, Galway, or various parts of Dublin, uh, where there are kind of parallel universes where people who are visual artists, not just painters, feel a vitality Mm. uh, and uh, a coming together that uh, allows them to really uh, in-depth investigate and uh, look at their own work and, and... get a great appreciation of each other. And I suppose that is one of the things that, one of the things that artists' colonies will attract. Then, of course, I suppose there are those that will go there that are disruptive, that are not into the work, that like the idea, mm. but are not willing to put in the footwork. So, I mean, to control that without becoming just like society in general, and have to introduce rules for behaviour and stuff. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that's when things start to change, and when maybe that organic spontaneity that brings people together uh, starts to break down a bit, yeah. and it becomes just like everywhere else. And you will get the disaffected, who yeah. feel somehow or other they're not being let in, and, and you get those that, you just get the hu- usual human dynamics and that's why I'm so impressed with the fact that O'Connor spent 10 years uh, there like working so intensely. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, because it could have got like the traffic jam of easels in uh, in, in, in Grez. Fontainebleau, yeah. Fontainebleau, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it's interesting that you say that it was as a result of going to the artist's uh, residency, the Ballin Glen Arts Foundation yes. in uh, Ballycastle in, in North Mayo, <laughs> that actually introduced you to that area and you ended up um, um, setting up a house and studio there. Yes. And you're not the only one because no. there, are, there are other artists have done that as well. That's right. And now a, um, a museum of art is being built in that small North Mayo town. And that's, that's right. all come out of um, a small artist residency stroke and that is now nearly becoming a a colony in some ways. Well, you know, we have witnessed ourselves as a consequence of being associated with the RHA that the annual exhibition always has a large component of landscape. Being Ireland, inevitably, that will be the case. However, what is really interesting from the point of view of the people who are looking at the work as it enters and, and then the work that is shown on the wall of the exhibition is the amount that is coming from North Mayo as a consequence of that residency and as a consequence of the coming together of artists to that place, which compared to Connemara, West Cork, 
Kerry, for instance, uh, is virtually untouched by tourism. And hence, you don't have that uh, infrastructure where you can get your olives, uh, good, <laughs> good wine, and maybe a nice Prosecco uh, whilst you wait for your name to be called for a nice hake, which has just been done in the local restaurant. It's not going to happen there. Uh, and so it's very affordable. Uh, it's off the scale a little bit, and uh, it's quite amazing. Uh, and and it, it has that, the, the Ballanglen Arts Foundation in Ballycastle has opened North Mayo to an awful lot of artists. Yeah, yeah. I don't think our lads from Pontevin would have liked that because they always had their di nice dinner cooked every night and their cider served Well, you would need that, but I suppose they had no refrigerators back then, did they? <laughs> you know, the deep freeze wasn't in operation. And of course, just the convenience of the automobile. Well, exactly. But at least in Pontevin, the apples were literally falling off the trees, so the cider was plentiful. What it must have been like, can you yeah. imagine? You I know, mean, trotting in uh, with your boots in the autumn, excited by the leaves mm. falling, the colour of everything, uh, maybe getting cooler in the evening, having to beat a retreat back to the tavern yeah. because it's getting dark, unburdening yourself from the easel and uh, trying to get the easel with the painting back without it falling. <laughs> uh, you'll probably have a great collection of insects on it anyway, uh, because uh, plain air painting, you're going to just get all that. But uh, to come back and hear a fire yeah. and people down, convivial conversation, yeah. go up to your room. Yeah. And if you were lucky, you had a good landlord or landlady who uh, was glad to see you back and give you a good, good wholesome uh, dinner. and. Uh, with the cider then you could uh, in depth get stuck into the conversation and move to whatever table or indeed uh, bar, stroke, restaurant, tavern that you wanted to, yeah. to go to to meet someone. Someone else had come into town or someone had left and there's people coming and going all the time. In fact, there's quite a number of paintings of people who are sick in their beds, mm. painted by artists mm. as they're recovering, which is, I suppose, a really, it's always good to have a model stay still yeah. for, for a while, you know. It's pity it's just life is not like that for artists anymore, isn't it? And I, I noticed that I, particularly the Pontevin uh, colony, there aren't any women in this ex artists in this exhibition. Mm -hmm. The only mention of women is uh, serving the, beer, probably. Yeah, or... they're the models yeah. in their Breton headdresses, mm. or they're you know they're knitting or sewing or or, you know, they're basically peasants at yeah. work, or, and there's a lot of mention of, as you say, the aforementioned landladies, yes. who were quite, quite motherly to these artists and looked after them very well and sometimes accepted um, were, uh, works of art in lieu of, like, bar bills. Which I'm sure they didn't think a great deal of. Yeah. Um, and, uh, no, I don't think they did. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, one of them, one of the hostelries was actually suing Gauguin mm. for a 300 franc um, uh, outstanding debt. Yeah. So I think Gauguin's last season in uh, Pont-Aven was not a happy one because I think he, he, was a, he was in bed with a broken ankle after getting into a, a brawl in nearby Concarneau, which is mm. another 
colony in and Concarno was a great place yeah. Leach loved going to yeah, Concarno yeah. but that's another day's work yeah so, so but he, he was in Gogan bed was in bed with a yeah. broken ankle owing in the landlady 300 she was suing him mm. and I think he just said oh Jesus I'm out of here and he headed back to uh, Tahiti after there that for uh, uh, you know leaving the reputation of artists everywhere in tatters yeah. that uh, we don't want another one of you crowd down you know to uh, get money up front please yeah. Uh, and uh, no, yeah. we won't take paintings. No, he's ruined it for all of us, really, hasn't he? Yeah, it's really. But look, yeah. he the trees never really looked like the kind of tree that he, the <laughs> landlord or landlady would be used to if Gauguin produced it. Yeah. Too yeah. much colour altogether. Too much colour, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but Gauguin was, was the kind of, the, he was the sort of the, the leader of the Pont gang. And uh, he was, although he, um, um, he he had gone um, in the in the earlier days of Pont of Pontevin, but he uh, his legacy li- lived on for artists for like many years after that. Mm. That he was sort of it was the it was the sort of the theories of of Gauguin who said you must you know you and he also said if you see blue you must paint blue if you see green you must paint green which mm. was you know look how bright it is you paint it like that yeah. and um, and he also said that you must be able to paint from your imagination as well that you can't be a slave to what's in front of you we're probably all slaves to what's in front of us aren't we uh, yes uh, we are well maybe uh, you're not because you actually do a lot of uh, Work or you have done a lot of work out of your imagination. No, I think as well. uh, both of us share that problem of being merely mimetic, <laughs> as maybe people who wouldn't be too well disposed towards that kind of work might phrase it. Uh, but I, you know, and uh, it's wide open. Uh, but he he left a legendary legacy as well by going off to the South Sea. So the stories yeah. about him must have been legion, and you know the fact that he had gone off there and and uh, gone to this exotic paradise so people thought and when you read the life story of the misery that he went through yeah. and how the French people, the colonists were disgusted by him uh, because he'd gone native and the natives wouldn't really accept him because he was French and the fact that he was still looking for money and waiting every time the boat came from France looking to see if something had arrived for him and between gonorrhea and then pain in his foot which never seemed to go uh, he, he, you know, he made a lot of sacrifices uh, for us, for artists, for art, for painting. But then again, uh, this this particular passage of the conversation started by talking about the women, and there doesn't seem to be mm. a lot of. And his wife certainly must have made an awful lot of sacrifices because uh, she had married somebody who had a good job in the bank, and suddenly she was uh, rearing kids by by herself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, although, I mean, I think um, uh, clearly, you know, in some ways, the life of an artist, we don't, you know, is not, I mean, it sounds like just, you know, heaven to have been mm. in a place like Pontevin, mm. doesn't it? And to a colony like that. But, yeah. but, but the fact is that, that the only reason that these men could do that probably is that they're, if they had wives, the wives were at home and, um, you know... Or they, they would have had uh, legacies as well. I mean, I guess a lot of the artists would have been financially, had some sort of uh, money coming yeah. to them. The other thing is that it would have been class. I mean, it was upper middle, It was an upper middle class or an aristocracy, the yeah. aristocracy's activity. So that in the 20th century, particularly after the Second World War, the class thing dissipated quite a bit, particularly in Britain, uh, and I guess also in the United States with the GI Bill. Uh, 
which allowed a lot of Americans to come to Europe uh, who had fought in the military during the Second World War and a lot of British uh, working class men and women to become more involved in the arts and that had a knock-on effect. So that when we're looking back at the uh, 19th century, early 20th century, you're looking at pr practitioners who had a certain amount of privilege, they had education. Uh, they obviously took enormous risks because within their class they would have been expected to conform to the pro one of the professions that uh, would have been clearly laid out for them. And to break that convention would have been huge, in, in some cases a huge sacrifice and uh, a, a major disappointment. So that with, relative to their circumstances, they were taking enormous risks. Mm. Uh, I, in this day and age, it's a far more, the arts are far more democratic, even though that now again is in question. Mm -hmm. When you look at the um, profile of maybe our colleges today, like the National College of Art mm. and Design, and I think that uh, in the 70s when I attended the college, uh, that it was far more representative of the various sections, the strata of society. I don't think that it is to the same extent today, but then I'm open to uh, correction. Yeah, that's interesting, mm. yeah. And I suppose the um, art colleges in themselves actually are um, microcosms of artists' colony. I mean, that's really, once you, you know, when you're at art college, that's the time when, you know, ideas are, are being exchanged, uh, peak influencing is going on. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you really see that among cohorts of people going through art college at, you know, I suppose you and I would have gone through art college in the late uh, 70s, mm -hmm. um, graduating in around 1980. And um, you, you, there is, a, I think there is, you, there is a sort of a certain, uh, I see a sort of seam running through many of our colleagues from that period of training that sort of stays with you, doesn't it? Um, throughout your career, even though there are so many changes that happen um, along the way. But I think that just that, that kind of core, um, uh, I suppose just the, the initial training and, and I suppose that you and I would have started art college when we were 17 or 18 years old, when you're also at peak kind of sponge absorption as yeah. well. <clears throat> yeah. And where you're soaking everything up mm. and everything's been taking, taken in in quite a profound way. Everything is up for grabs now. Everything is changing. Mm. And it's interesting the way the uh, social media has um, been a catalyst for the revival of old skills with a, with a new twist, I, I guess. I know, who would have thought it? I mean, it's, it's kind of an unforeseen, um, but it's, it's happening because, of the, of, because of the internet. Technical virtuosity is scary. Yeah. I guess, and I, 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 I'm conscious of saying, I guess, all the time, <laughs> watching too many American sitcoms. <laughs> I gather because of, um, uh, of being able to just take a snap on the iPad and uh, that it's the image is arrested. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about those paintings anymore. I'm, 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 yeah. uh, I'm really getting turned off of uh, hyper-realism. This is a subjective <laughs> response. I am. I really find 
it's not doing anything for me. No, especially because the only the time you always see it is on is on your phone, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. That's where you see the hyperrealism. It seems so soulless, and I look at and these it looks little like, brushes. And you only you only ever see it as a, as a photograph. And yeah. You're looking you're looking for the you want to, you want the brush strokes to come back now. Well, I want, I'm looking at the way they've been painted because I was even looking at one yesterday. Uh, you know, and the way it's it's so schematic. Mm. Um, you know, the, you get the ground painted in. Then you get the kind of um, brown sketch done, obviously from a photograph. And then you get one, I was watching one eye being painted with a little brush back, and then the nose would be done, and I'm thinking, okay, I, you know, you're just, you're just the jury's out. You're just jealous. I'm just jealous. <laughs> I'm just jealous. You wish you had those, you wish you had those little brushes yeah, yeah, yeah. instead of those worn out yeah. hog hairs. Irish equivalent. I suppose after the War of Independence and the new state, Connemara. Uh, Charles Lamb. Charles Lamb. Mm. Uh, Connemara was the draw, wasn't yes, it? Yes, I think so. Uh, Keating, uh, like like in Brittany, they were looking for an authentic yeah. way of life, an yeah. authenticity that it was felt had been lost in bourgeois yeah. uh, centres. Um, uh, yeah, there was a definitely movement to the West, wasn't movement, there? So, yeah, I mean, movement to the West. Keating, yeah. Lamb, uh, McGonagall, mm, a host Paul of Henry. others. Paul Henry. Yeah. Um, Grace Henry. Yeah. Uh, even uh, the American painter uh, Han Rai. Oh, yeah. Robert, yeah. Robert Han Rai. Yeah, yeah, who came from New York, one right. of the Ashcan school, and he spent yeah. time in Ackle, like, yeah. uh, like Paul Henry. I'd be curious to know if they actually had much uh, to do with each other. But, of course... I think uh, Paul Henry's period, main period was just up until the early 1920s. I mean, yeah. it, wasn't, it was a short, intense yeah. period spent yeah. in Ackle. Yes. Uh, but back to Belfast after that, but Ackle never left him. And he must have come down a fair bit. And again, railways. There was railways. a railway line to uh, Ackle. I think it closed around 1938 or sometime around then. But yeah. the local railways uh, accessed that. So coming from Belfast to Ackle was no great hardship if you were to use the brilliant uh, rail network that was still in the country at the time. Yeah, and then there'd be people like, uh, you know, slightly more recent uh, artists like Barbara Warren and Margaret Irwin West, who yes. would have gravitated towards, Conne towards Connemara from having Barbara Warren, certainly uh, she studied with Charles Lamb there, and that led her onto a lifetime of, um, of uh, basically responding to the Connemara landscape in mm -hmm. her work. But when you talk about the trains and the Belfast, that kind of brings us on to the Inishlaken project, mm -hmm. which is a, an artist's residency that both you and I have 
uh, spend time on. You in particular, I think you have probably every year for 17 years. With one or two exceptions. With one or two exceptions. So that is a residency that is, um, it's, uh, it's an, basically it's an homage to uh, the artist Gerald Dillon and a couple of his contemporaries who, who uh, sort of spent some time there in the 50s mm-hmm. when the island was still populated. Mm-hmm. Inishlaken is an island off Roundstone, mm-hmm. as uh, for people who are listening. Um, and um, there is an artist uh, from Belfast called Rosie McGurran, who lives in Roundstone, uh, who has uh, started this artist residency that she's run now uh, for many years. And she invites uh, up to about 20 artists to spend a week on the island every midsummer. Um, artists and she it's it's a great and that's quite a good although people are from different disciplines and they're very much doing their own thing um, there is quite a lot of uh, you know there is quite a lot of kind of collaboration between people because sometimes there's there's painters like us and then there's performance artists there and then you know sometimes the performance artists would ask the painters to make something for them to use in their performance there's also writers there's musicians um and uh so in a, in a way it's although it's only a week because it's been running for so many years it's almost has become and there's been a couple of exhibitions have grown out of that, um, notably um, uh, one in Syracuse in New York, selection of work from that residency, that was visited by um, quite a lot of um, American descendants whose uh, ancestors had been evacuated off Inishlaken when it, Inishlaken never got the rural electrification and people basically had to leave. Mm-hmm. And that's created new uh, kind of new connections and some of those um, American Irish descendants have come back and we've met them on the um, on the island and it's just been very uh, I found it all very positive yeah it's no brilliant. it's um, I, I, George Campbell particularly was the other artist Gerard Dillon they 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 were, well, Dylan in particular, I guess, brought modernism to Irish representational work. And at the same time, his other source was early Irish art, but particularly carvings that you'd get, for instance, on the Cross of Kong. Yeah. And it's um, fascinating to see how he will use the panels that, of stone carving that tell stories on the high crosses and kind of replicate that by looking at the small field structure that you find on Inishlaken, little rectangles, mm. and have them populated with little donkeys or whatever, which is what was there. It's not a romantic notion, but uh, it was the reality of what was there and uh, make these paintings, which are very exciting mm. uh, and uh, are different within the Irish context. Within the Irish context, the academic context maybe of naturalism uh, by McGonigal or uh, the RHA tradition, uh, Dylan seems to to be a bridge uh, from a new uh, the living art bridge. But as you say, uh, Rosie McGurran, the artist from Belfast, has reopened that Belfast Roundstone Inishlaken access, and I've been really privileged to be part of that. And yeah. one of the great, one of the essential things, or one of the things that that uh, makes it really good is for a painter like you or I. The idea of uh, painting the landscape, painting the sea, and then jumping into the sea. Yeah. <laughs> and then jump, coming out of the sea, painting, eating, jumping into the sea again. So it's a bit like full immersion. Not only are you getting fully yeah. immersed in the painting, yeah. but the elements that, you're, that constitute the painting, the, what the painting is representing, yeah. you're immersing yeah. yourself in that as well. So it's kind of a total experience. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful... I, 
People were looking for authenticity back in the 19th century, maybe early 20th century. I'm not quite sure what we're looking for now. I think it's valuing what we have. This pristine, mm. almost pristine landscape, except for plastic, which yeah. is the biggest threat to our planet and to Ireland. But this almost pristine landscape, I always, and I'll say almost anymore. Yeah, I like the way plastic. you say that. Yeah. It's plastic. Uh, and um, just to celebrate that and to know that you're damn lucky. in the context of my residency here as the artist in residence uh, uh, in the National Gallery for this um, exhibition about Pontevin. Um, I, I kind of arrived in here really, in a lot of ways, not knowing what I was going to do. So I just thought the best way to approach it was just to take one picture and use the exact same pose, the same composition, the same lighting and the same media for, but take a contemporary model. So instead of a young Breton girl, it's a young girl that I know, and I got her to pose for me. And I worked in pastels, which is not my normal medium at all. And just by doing that, and doing, working in a way that I don't work, that then led me on to other ways of engagement uh, with the exhibition. So, so in a way, I, although I am, working a hundred years after the people in the, uh, the exhibition, in a way I feel that I am part, part of that artist's colony, kind of in a, you know, across a sort of a gap of about a hundred years, because I have had such an engagement with it that I, I, I visit the exhibition every day, um, sometimes just to look at one piece of work that I'm referencing in my work, and I've been reading up about, um, about, about all the artists who were there and reading all the anecdotes, reading around the exhibition. And in, in, a, in a way, in a funny kind of way, um, it's, I think my work will have changed a little bit over the month of engaging with artists who were working 100 years ago. Um, and I think that that's what has been so, although I was terrified of coming in here with not, no plan, really, I think it's been, it's been very good because I've just, it's almost like I'm at the colony, I don't know what's going to happen, and, um, and, and it just all happens through the work just happening. And I, it's fascinating. I think it's been a brilliant idea to get you here in residency in the National Gallery in the first place. I think you're a yeah. perfect artist for it and the way that you immerse yourself in, the way you have immersed yourself in the subject, the proximity mm. of the paintings and of this exhibition to you, the fact that you have a wonderful studio 
uh, huge, but as you realize yourself, it doesn't take long to <laughs> fill it up. You know, the bigger the studio, the smaller it'll look in a couple of months' time. Uh, but the fact that you can see that you somehow, it's invaded you, mm. the exhibition, the north of France, Brittany has, in, uh, has somehow got into your bloodstream. It's got into, you're probably yeah. dreaming about it. I am. Um, and it's having a profound, like the, yeah. a century. A century apart. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's also because those people working in Pontevin had time and space to do whatever they wanted to do. Yeah. I have time and space now here because, and I'm getting, um, you know, people to come and sit for me and not commissioned portraits or anything like that. So there is absolutely no agenda other than, than mine. And I've warned it's, people. It's, it's sensory, completely yeah, sensory. Yeah, so, so, so basically I've warned people that, you, you know, I'm not going to make a pretty picture of you because mm. I'm going to be putting in red and green stripes right. on the shadow side of your face. And mm -hmm. I'm going to be, and so my volunteers are just know that this is going to be happening. So they're not going to sort of look at the picture at the end and go, Maybe parallels, I hate that. maybe parallels can be drawn with traditional music. You know, the fact is, you're using the same materials as the artists whose work is in this exhibition yeah. are, have used. So you're within a tradition. And a tradition is ever growing and communicating with each other. And the organic nature of traditional musicians coming from families, visiting musicians, coming and influencing them, some wandering piper, back in the 1920s, coming from County Leitrim, staying up in some house in Clare for a couple of months because there's a, there's a hospitable family, people coming from far and wide to hear them, that then influencing the next generation and so on and so forth, that the thread can be found. And some of our best and finest exponents of the fiddle, of the pipes, accordion, button accordion, concertina, whatever, harp, they they are part of a lineage that they can trace, that they have been told about, somebody who's influenced somebody, you know. And in the same way, I think, I'm drawing a parallel with the way you're living out your work right now in the gallery as a consequence of just engaging so much with the living work that's on the wall. And mm. I suppose that's what it is. Painting is living. It's alive. It's communicating. Uh, it doesn't cease to emit and um, you're you're obviously very sensitive to what is being emitted to the extent that it's really got in on you and it's going to change it's going to change <laughs> the way you're working people are going to say what what happened to Celie? she what happened to her she was fine before yeah. she went into the national yeah, gallery yeah, and yeah, now yeah. look what she's doing oh she was brought off to somewhere really hot <laughs> for a few months and it's had a profound effect on her. Oh yeah, and the other thing I'm doing, which I, as you know, I'm killed telling people not to do is, like any students of mine, my, my big bugbears are not to use paint straight out of the tube and to mix the paint on the palette, not on the canvas. Yeah. Both of which rules have been thrown out the window because these lads down in the exhibition Sometimes the tube was just squeezed onto the canvas. Yeah. And clearly the paint is rarely mixed in, it, in advance. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's one brush stroke which mm. contains, you know, little, little strips of, you know, pink, green, blue and one brush stroke. Whereas, mm. uh, so, so for You've me- You've gone to the dogs. I've gone to the dark side. I've thrown out my, my whole rule book. <laughs> because, <at> because <laughs> Irish painting, a bit like British painting, 
was, would have been characterized as tonal painting. Yeah, and I exactly. Remember, and I remember um, Charlie Cullen telling me when he was a student in the College of Art, starting to use very bright colors. And McGonagall, the professor of painting, said to him, uh, this is a tonal college. Uh, and I guess you know that comes right through in 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 all kinds of uh, painting whether you look at Patrick Collins uh, or anyone else it it doesn't matter whether it's representational Mm. or or abstract or semi-abstract I mean there are exceptions obviously Um, William Crozier is quite an exception but uh, no, you, you, no, you, me. Yeah. Because oh, I have, I have a tube of cadmium green. I've had it for my twenty years. Yeah. I don't use any uh, greens out of t- out of a tube. Which except cost you a fortune, cadmium yeah, green. Yeah. Fortune. Bloody. So, but I mean, I've never, I never use it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't use tu- uh, ready-made greens except mm. for viridian in color mixes sometimes. Mm. But this time, I've got the cadmium green and I've put it straight onto the painting, mm. and it's like. You know, you feel, and then put a put a, a kind of a you know a, a pink straight out of the tube right beside it, and mm. you're getting these you know sh- shimmering light effects that I have never even gone near. You're entering new territory. I'm entering new territory. I haven't done anything like that since I was in first year in art college. Yeah, and then until it got drummed out of me. Well, hopefully, we'll put an end to it as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming along and talking to me on my residency here, Mick. It's been really interesting. Thank you, Una, and uh, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Imagining France, Roderick O'Connor and the Moderns between Paris and Pontevin. With audio engineering by Mark Canton, music composition by Michael Fleming, and produced by Brina Casey.